too that we get to come together for all this and to to pray the Lord to be for you and we and to learn from the Lord. morning. <clears throat> if you would, please open with me to Matthew chapter 28. Just because it's the new year, I would title this something like Staying the Course. When we uh, reach the end of the year, it always makes us ponder you know, what we did over the last year, what the next year is going to look like, um, what that holds for us, what we're going to do. Is usually we set resolutions, goals, we have ambitions on what we're going to do over 2013. Um, so I think, um, since it's close enough to New Year's Day, I think it'd be a good time to reflect both individually and then as a church. Um, what we're here for, and where we're going, what we're doing. The psalmist says, how does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And it also says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, if we want to make sure that we're living life as we should, that we're aiming at the right end, um, then we must look at God's word. So, I want to look at Matthew chapter 28. I want to look at the Great Commission. And here, as we look at the Great Commission, I want to look at why we're here, what we're doing. Why do we gather as Redwood Christian Fellowship week after week in Fortuna? Why are we going to keep meeting over 2013? Of course, we have broad statements about our existence. We say grand things like, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's grand and that's lofty, but from time to time we need help with how do we actually work that out? What does that look like in our day-to-day walk and then as a church. So let's look at the Great Commission um, and let's look at how Jesus told us that we would glorify God. So let's start in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw them, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So hold right there. Here we have Jesus at the height of his victory. He came into the world, died on the cross for conquering sin and death, and then rising again three days later. And then he appeared to his disciples who are necessarily stunned, right? He was dead. They watched him get, not just die of, you know, slowly from age or illness, but to be brutally executed on a cross. To see blood flowing down his, his side, you know, his, his rib cage crushed in, you know, as blood and water flowed out. And so, you know, unlike Lazarus, when Lazarus died, he died of some sickness, he was raised again. But here they saw a body completely crushed on the cross. And so when he arrives, they're completely stunned, they're confused, and naturally some of them are skeptical. It says that some of them doubted. 
People just don't rise from the dead. Yet Jesus appeared to them, and then John tells them that he met them in their doubting and in their weakness, and he let them touch his scars. He talked to them, he ate with them, he had fellowship with them, and, and they came to believe and to rejoice that Jesus had risen from the dead and he had reigned victorious. So now that Jesus has shown that he's victorious over death, he comes with a declaration of victory. He has won the, the, the decisive battle, and now we see the results. It's as if he already did D-Day, and now the rest of it is just cleaning up the rest of the pieces. So Jesus came and said to them, and we'll pick it up again, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I want to start off as we look at this with a question. What is the main command of the Great Commission? Uh, We have some options. Is it to go? Is it to make disciples? Is it to baptize people? Is it to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded? Which one of those is the main command of the Great Commission? And as we look at English, we can scratch our heads, ponder it, and I think we'd get to the right answer. But in the original language, it's pretty easy. There's only one verb in this sentence, and that's to make disciples. The main goal of the Great Commission is to make disciples. So, as Redwood Christian Fellowship entering 2013, it's our main goal as a church, our marching orders, to make disciples. And the means by which you make disciples is to go, is to baptize them, and is to teach them all that Jesus commanded. So we're going to look at those um, commands to go, baptize, and to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. But before we do that, we need to actually look and make sure we understand that we understand what Jesus means by disciples. You better be clear on that. Because if you talk to different people in the church who've been in the church for a while, and say, what's a disciple? You would get different answers. Um, Even while I was looking into this, you get different answers. Um, So what's a disciple? Well, some might say, a disciple is a committed Christian. That is, it's someone can be saved, but Christ may not be Lord of your life, so they're kind of just living life as they would. They're saved, but Christ isn't Lord, so they're not really a disciple yet. But they'll be a disciple eventually. Christ is your Savior, but not your Lord. And that's kind of an extreme case, but if you pull over a little bit closer, a lot of people probably hold this view, that disciples are the Christians who live a little bit more radically. You know, like the missionaries, or the people that are really awkward to talk to at church because they're really overly serious about everything, right? So disciples are the ones who are really sold out for Christ. And usually that's a rare case, right? Some people view disciples as the ones who are learners. So when someone gets saved and they're a newborn Christian, they're really passionate, but goodness, they have a lot to learn. When I go over time, don't worry, they'll settle down, they'll pay their dues, and they'll sit in the pew and be happy little Christians from that point on. Right, so disciples is that, that first stage, that introductory stage where they're learning everything. Or a third position, um, maybe, just maybe, disciple is another word for Christian. That if you're a Christian, then you're necessarily a disciple. And in fact, um, that's the third position. I think that's what Jesus taught. In fact, people weren't called Christians immediately. If you read in the book of Acts, it's not until chapter 11 that Christians are actually called Christians. Before that, they were called disciples, or followers of the way. And so, 
If you're going to be a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, then you are called to be a disciple, a follower of Christ Jesus. So, turn to Luke 14. Keep your finger in Matthew 28. Turn to Luke 14. What is it that Jesus expects of a disciple? If we are to be disciples, if we are to make disciples, then we need to know what Jesus expects from us. Let me give you a couple points that are not in Luke 14 um, as you're turning there. The first one's pretty easy. You would probably guess this one. A disciple is someone who listens to and obeys the commands and instructions of their teacher. I mean, that's what Jesus told you to do. Go make disciples. Disciples will obey all that I have commanded. So that means if you're a disciple, then you're familiar with, you've studied, you understand the instructions that Jesus gave, and you're concerned with obeying them. If Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, you say, okay, I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind and strength. And if he says to love your neighbor as yourself, you're familiar with that command, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You actually seek to obey it. A bad disciple would be like, oh yeah, he says that, but I don't really listen to that one. I pick and choose the ones that are convenient for me. So a disciple is someone who obeys the commands of the teacher. A disciple is also someone that becomes like their teacher because of imitation. Here's something that Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And we know this. You've spent... um, you, you spend time around with a group of people, and if there's like a really strong personality in that group, everybody starts sounding like that person and acting like that person. I go down, uh, the seminary I go to, they have this really bombastic preacher. I mean, passionate, explosive. And all the people in their church tend to che- preach bombastically. You can hear his, tonal, his tone inflections, even in their voices. I, I know what church you go to. Right? So when you're around someone, when you're around a teacher, you tend to be like them just by imitation. So if we were to follow Christ Jesus, then we were going to become more and more like Christ Jesus because of our imitation of him and just by familiarity. Now for the hard stuff. This is what Christ is going to tell us in Luke chapter 14. A disciple is characterized as one who will leave everything to follow Christ. Look at verse 25. If anyone does not come... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross to come after me cannot be my disciple. And in the last verse, verse 33, you'll see a summary statement. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now when Jesus says hate, he's using it hyperbole. He's talking with extreme language. He, we know he's not meaning hate your brothers, hate your sisters, because he's commanded us to love your neighbor as yourself. So we're told to obey the law of love, but he's talking an extreme way to get our attention. What Jesus means by hating the members of your family would be such that your priority And your affection and devotion to him is such that all other spheres of affection and devotion and self-interest would look like hatred by comparison. You're so much more devoted to Christ that you'd be willing to leave your family, to sell your home, to lay down your life. He 
If you're a disciple of Christ, you're called to give up everything. You cannot say that your house is your own. It belongs to Christ. You cannot say your money is your own. It belongs to Christ. You cannot say your family belongs to you. It belongs to Christ. You cannot even say that your own life belongs to you. It belongs to Christ. All that you own, all that you are, belongs to Christ Jesus to do as He pleases. And when He speaks of laying down your life, He's not even talking about necessarily one moment of sacrifice where you die for Him. I mean, that might be involved in that matter. But He's saying laying down your life daily. You're daily giving up your self-interests to pursue His interests. So, can you make that commitment? Jesus actually calls us to consider the cost, to weigh that in. Can you actually do that? Are you actually willing to give up everything, to renounce everything for him? In verse 28, he gives a little parable. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all will see and mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is laying the stakes out in front of you. He's making it perfectly clear as what he's expecting. And he says, if you're not in it for everything, then don't start. There's no point. Because at some point, God's going to ask you to do something that you're not willing to do. We often follow God until something strikes us as inconvenient. When he calls us to make a sacrifice we're not ready to make. Or... He behaves a way that you say, God, you wouldn't do that, would you? You follow a God of your own convenience, a God that you can actually handle. And so at some point, you're going to come to this point of crisis. If you're not willing to follow him completely, no matter where he goes and wherever he sends you, you're going to reach a point of crisis. And if you're not completely sold out, then you'll just change him. You'll make a God of your own image. You You will not obey something he tells you to do. So he's telling you, count the cost. Be sure before you start that you're willing to do this. So weigh the cost. But as you're pondering whether or not you can afford this type of life, consider whether or not you can afford not to make this commitment. Because the next parable he gives you is in 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So the first one is contemplation of whether or not you can afford this. And the second one is consider whether or not you cannot afford to become his disciple. He says, consider me as a king with a larger army than you. You will perish if you stand against me. Now wisdom says that you would count your cost and say, I must come on the side of that king. And you'd go and you'd say, what are the terms of peace? And the king says, the terms of peace is everything. I want everything, including your life. In Psalms chapter 2, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Come and make peace. And the terms of peace is to give your life over and be his disciple. These are hard words. It's a hard life. Yet, despite this radical commitment, as any follower of Christ will tell you, the joy of the commitment is like finding, finding a treasure hidden in the field 
And you'd go home and you'd sell everything you had to go buy that field and get that treasure. The ultimate fuel, the ultimate motivation for a radical life, this type of discipleship, is to see that Christ is the most precious thing in life. That Jesus is truly the only one that can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. That Jesus and his kingdom and his purposes are the goals worth living for. They give you the greatest satisfaction, the greatest joy, the greatest peace. To have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that you could ever experience. To follow him would result in ultimate flourishing. So if you consider and you weigh the cost, you say, but this is the greatest investment I have ever made. To give up my life, to give up my home, to be willing to leave my family, to do whatever, to even die, is an easy sacrifice knowing the treasure thou will gain by doing it. We gain Christ and Jesus. We gain God. So I hope and pray that each of us here are those types of people. I hope that we are disciples. I hope that we serve God and not money. I hope that we have considered the weightiness of his call. I hope that we consider the glory that comes from God to be more precious to us than the glory that comes from mankind. That we prefer the divine accolade versus the fickle applause of humans. So now that we understand what Jesus means by disciples, then we actually understand the radical command of the Great Commission. He says, you are to be those types of people, and you are to make other people those types of people. Every disciple of Christ Jesus will be a disciple maker. If you see Christ as worthy of receiving all glory and honor, we sang that today, then you'll make disciples because you want his name to be honored and glorified in the hearts of other people. And then if you see Christ as a great Savior, a glorious Savior who saved you from the pit of despair, then why would you not want to share that with other people? Why would you not want to share that joy, that peace, that treasure with other people? Because it's free to give out. So if you are truly a disciple, you will make other disciples. So here are the marching orders of the church and the church corporately and your life individually. Disciples make disciples who make disciples. That is what God has called us to do. And in this way, the church becomes self-propagating because as we make more disciples, we have more opportunities for ministry. And the church will be stronger because we'll be able to serve each other better. So, Jesus tells us to make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. So turn back over to Matthew 28. So discipleship, sometimes we think discipleship involves a phase when you have a Christian on your hands. It's like, all right, Christian, time to get discipled. But Jesus is going to tell us that discipleship includes both ends of the spectrum. Discipleship involves those who are not saved and those who are saved. The going is evangelism. It's part of discipleship. Go, reach people. And then we're going to have the other side of it, which is baptizing and teaching. And that's the involvement of Christian growth. So, the priority of going. Make disciples by going. This is evangelism. There tends to be an attitude that stifles evangelism in the church. And it goes like this. I will evangelize when someone comes up to me and asks me why I behave the way I do. That's what Peter says, right? I'm going to live in such a way that people say, there's something different about you. And they're going to come and say, hey, what's different about you? And you're like, aha, the moment of evangelism has come at last. (laughs) I know we're all guilty of this. 
I've done it, yeah, I've done it plenty. Right? I can't disagree with Peter. Right? Because Peter says, live in such a way that people look at you and say, there's something different. Why is, why is it different? So, yes, there is an aspect that our, our actions must be different. We must live lives that have actually been truly transformed by God. If your life doesn't look like it's been transformed by God, no one's going to see anything different. No one will ever ask. So you need to act in accordance to repentance and discipleship, following Christ Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't disagree with Jesus. Okay? Peter was talking to people who were about to be brutally persecuted. He says, when people are putting you to death, still bless them. And that will make them think. Right? We don't get persecuted that often. So um, live lives in accordance to the gospel. But that's not the only opportunity for evangelism. In fact, Peter's going to agree with Jesus. Our evangelism is not restricted to those opportunities. Jesus commands us to go and proclaim. We have to be the initiators. We go. Jesus will never accept the excuse that there was never anyone available to share the gospel with. Jesus, there was no one to share the gospel with. No one ever came and said anything to me. I told you to go. Go to the people. Go and proclaim. The word gospel is a word that was not unfamiliar to the people of that day. The gospel was a proclamation that Caesars made regularly. A gospel goes something like this. Go tell a nation, everyone in it, that a general has conquered this land over here. So general comes victorious and said, okay, there is news that affects all the people of our nation. Gospel, good news proclamation. And it's going to affect your life, so you better listen. And so heralds would come into the towns and say, the general has conquered. Or they might say, a new king has been put in place. So when Jesus calls us to be proclaimers of the gospel, at times we're called to be like heralds in a town. You stop people in what they're doing. You say, hey, good news. That affects your life. Pay attention. There is a king. He is your savior. You need to be saved. You're a herald. You're a proclaimer. Okay, cool. So where do we start? We, you might say, well, God, where, where are the people that I'm supposed to reach out to? Who are the people I'm supposed to evangelize? And Jesus says, they're not far, actually. Start in Jerusalem. Jesus told his disciples to start in their hometown. This is natural. They have friends. They have family. They already have connections. They have relationships with people. It's really easy to say, hey, Fred, guess what? Jesus rose from the dead. It's, you know, these, these are people that you have relationship, things in common with, it's really easy to talk to those types of people. So he says, start with the relationships that you already have. So there are relationships in our lives that have already been established that you have natural opportunities to proclaim the gospel to. And so despite the odds, right, Jesus says, hey, go back to Jerusalem where they executed me and the people who hated me and tell them that I rose from the dead and they can be saved. And despite all the odds... Christ's enemies became his followers. On the day of Pentecost, hundreds were saved in the book of Acts, in the city of Jerusalem. Repentance came to that town because the disciples were faithful to go and preach. Then Jesus told them to move outward, to go to the county. Like, it's like a county of Judea. It'd be like, start in Fortuna, then go to Humble County. So don't just stay where you're comfortable. Move on. As the opportunity presents itself, tell other people that you're not familiar with, you don't have friendships with, complete strangers. Tell them about the gospel. 
And then when you've done that, go to the Samaritans. You know, the people that you despise, the people you don't like. Those people over there, the people we don't associate with. The gospel's for them too. The gospel is not limited by petty human prejudices. Right? Your snobbery doesn't get in the way. Go to those that you find it, that you think are your enemies. And then finally, when you've reached the people that you even despise, and go to the whole world. When do you stop? When the whole world's reached. If you have the opportunity, then go. The victory of Christ is not hindered by distance or cultural barrier or languages. It's just not. Jesus says, my victory goes to the whole world, and you'll be participants in all that. Now think about it. You had these fishermen. Three years ago, they're fishing in the sea, thinking that their life is going to be living, eating fish, fishing fish, dying. Fishermen. And suddenly these men are all over the world preaching the gospel of Christ Jesus. We don't think that any of us would ever be that person. But you could very readily be that person. To be that person who goes to wherever God calls you to be. Besides, you're a disciple. You've got to be ready to go. You've got to be ready to give up everything for his cause. When we go, we are to go with acts of kindness and love. We are called not just to be proclaimers, but to, we're actually concerned about people. We're not collecting scalps for heaven. Right? We go to people and we say, come on, get saved. We need more people in heaven. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean anything to people. But you need to show that you're genuinely concerned for the people and the plight they're in and the consequences of sin. You're not going to be just a person who goes and tells them good news, but if you see them hurting, naked, starving, then you'll meet those needs because you care about that person. You need to go with love because, I think you all know this, if you go around speaking the gospel, people are going to think you're an idiot. They're going to think you're foolish. I mean, right now, to be a skeptic, to be a hater of Christian, that's really chic, right? It's the thing to do nowadays, right? The thing to do right there is never to say anything absolute. Never say, absolutely, Jesus is God. You need to repent and believe. They hate that. It's like, well, there's many ways to God. No, there's one way to God. It, I mean, it's like, they're looking at you it's like, you're an idiot. No, that's not how it goes. And so you've got to be ready to look foolish in front of people. I mean, this is where the fear of man versus the fear of God comes in. Who do, who do you really care about? Yourself? So that people think you're oh so smart? That you're, that you're in, you're, you've got it all figured out? Or are you actually concerned for God's glory, that people might be saved? Are you actually concerned that this person might be saved? So in love, it takes an act of love to become a fool. That's, in one sense, what Jesus did. He came to live a life, a foolish life, but he did it because of love so that people might be saved. And in that foolishness, there is power. Speaking of power, we're greatly equipped with power. Because I probably know what you're thinking. No one will possibly accept the gospel. One day I was sitting around at HSU, and we, me and a friend were talking, like, hey, we should get, like, gospels to hand out. And we're thinking, like, what gospel would we give? Like, you know, gospel of Mark, gospel of John. I'm like, oh, man, not the gospel of John. I mean, he says all those crazy things, like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I mean, people read that, they go, that's crazy. And all of a sudden it hit me, like, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's no more crazier today than it was then. And despite the craziness of the message, people get saved. Why? Because we're equipped with power. 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, here's what Jesus says. When you receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus has given us His Holy Spirit to ensure that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. He didn't leave it up to us by ourselves. It wouldn't be enough. He gave us the Holy Spirit to actually make sure this happens. So, let's, let me read some verses to you that will help you with your fear that no one will ever listen to the Gospel. And frankly, you listen to the Gospel. God did work in your heart, so it does happen. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you a testimony, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. So this verse should be encouragement to us that is not our eloquence that saves someone. You could be sharing the gospel with someone. You could be shaking. You could be flushed. You could be tripping over your words. It doesn't matter because it's not your eloquence that will save them. It's the power of God that takes that message and pierces their hearts that saves them. It's the Holy Spirit working. You're just wielding a sword. The Spirit's using it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Really? How? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So when you speak these words, some people are going to reject. It's going to happen. But then some people will they will be transformed. They will be convicted. Because the Holy Spirit's there doing it. So we are greatly equipped for this task of going. The Gospel is effective. It is the power of God. And if we never see anyone turning to Christ, I'm going to suggest to you it's not because the Gospel is an impotent message. It's not the Gospel's fault. Most likely it's the case that we're silent. Most likely that's the case. We're not out there speaking. Why don't I see any fruit? Well, have you been sowing? Right? I'd be a foolish farmer to go out there and not broadcast any seeds and then expect there to be fruit. So likewise, we need to be people who are constantly broadcasting. And from time to time, you'll be surprised. Guess what? There will be fruit. And it will be joyous. So the, Jesus tells us that the harvest is plenty. There's plenty of harvest. He says the problem is the laborers are few. So we, as individuals, as a church, we need to be steadfast in laboring because there is a blood-bought harvest in Fortuna, and in Rio Dell, in Scotia, and Lolita, and all of Humboldt County, in California, United States, all the earth. And we can be participants in reaping that harvest. So the going is the evangelism of discipleship. When someone repents and turns for their sins, our job is not complete. In many ways, it's just begun. 
So, Jesus tells us the disciples are to be baptized and they're to be taught. So, the significance of baptism. Baptism is a public proclamation that you're a follower of Christ Jesus. You're publicly identifying for anyone to see that you belong to Christ. The fact is, Jesus will have no secret disciples. There's just no category in the Bible for secret disciples. In John chapter 12, here's a statement that the apostle makes. Many authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. I mean, this is mind-blowing. They actually believed that he was the Messiah, but they would not confess it. Why? What was their motivation? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So if you're not willing to stand up and make a public proclamation, usually for the fear of man, then you're probably not a disciple. Jesus says and warns us that everyone who does not acknowledge me before man, I will also, everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now granted, these passages are dealing with way more than just baptism. You can be someone who's baptized and still reject Christ, still deny him. But I think baptism is included in this. Now, if I come up to someone and who hasn't been baptized um, because of the fear of man, and they seem to have no desire to get baptized, I don't know what they mean by being a Christian. I mean, being a Christian means following. So if you, you need to make that first step, that first proclamation. I know most of you have been baptized. I'm sure some of you are getting baptized. But I'm not trying to put like a guilt trip on anyone because I'm pretty sure <laughs> that most of you are followers of Christ Jesus. And you'll get baptized. It's not that you don't want to. But consider it. If you've never been baptized, because it's strange. You, you'll have people who have been Christians for years and never done this. You've never been baptized. Because you've been afraid of doing it. Wrong reason. You need to get baptized. Be an obedient follower of Christ. When I was saved, I spent one year not getting baptized, and I knew it. I knew it. I kept avoiding it. I kept avoiding it. kept avoiding it. And it was like the biggest weight of guilt I've ever felt, like, well, after getting saved, because I just got saved. <laughs> Freedom and salvation, and then one year of complete disobedience, because I didn't want to get baptized. And then my brother gets saved and says, okay, you need to get baptized. I'm like, I know I need to get baptized. Okay, let's get baptized. <laughs> I got baptized, and it was not as horrible. It wasn't horrible. It was great. So You just get a little wet. <laughs> you get to share your testimony. It's actually pretty cool. So if the gospel of Christ transforms you, then obedience will necessarily follow. It's like thunder will follow lightning. God transforms you, you'll start obeying. And so as we come across people, as they get saved, as they get transformed, we should be encouraging them, get baptized. Make a public declaration that you are a follower of Christ Jesus. Then he tells them to teach them to obey the all that he commanded. So teaching. So we're to baptize them, to make a public proclamation, and then we're to teach them. Now, there's formal and informal teaching. And I think when we say teach them to observe all commanded, I think most of them think the formal teaching. Someone stands up, sermon, Bible study, you know, everybody sits down and listens, one person talks. That's what you're usually thinking of when you think teaching. But I think that there's more teaching that's supposed to go on that's informal. And it's probably more important. I mean, teachers can teach, talk until they're blue in the face, but 
it's the informal moments that actually seem to transform people's lives as well. And we're not going to say that this is not ineffective when Pastor Bob's out there preaching. It does have its effect. But I think if all the teaching is just Pastor Bob, there's not enough teaching going on in the church. We're supposed to be, all of us, teaching and speaking the word into each other's life perpetually. Everyone has the ability to teach informally. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, if you read through the epistles, there are many, many commands where Paul says, speak the word into each other's life, sing to each other psalms and spiritual songs, and notice that he didn't say, hey, pastors do that. He said, you, you all do this. So informal teaching. Some things are just caught, not taught. Right? Some things are caught, not taught. For example, consider how your parents taught you. Did they always sit down and lecture you? I mean, they did, right? <laughs> Most of the time, instruction came from just spending time with them, watching them, imitating them, following their examples, listening to their explanations, letting them rebuke us, letting us encourage us, telling us that we're doing good. It's that kind of warp and woof of life where you're just in each other's life and they're just instructing you, taking informal moments to explain stuff to you. It's just being around each other and listening to someone and imitating someone. That's informal teaching. And it, you have to be deliberate about it. You, we get around each other's lives, and we need to be willing to look and say, hey, brother, that's sin. Or, hey, I was really encouraged with this passage. Can I share it with you? Our fellowship isn't really Christian fellowship until really God is in it, right? If we hang around and just have good times, well, we had a good time, but the world can do that too. I mean, we can't have good times. We're a family, but we're supposed to be encouraging and exhorting one another as well. If you read the Gospels and look at the way Jesus taught his disciples, I mean, he had his group, you know, moments when he proclaimed, when he preached to huge crowds, but some of the, like, more deep, striking moments that Jesus had with his 12 disciples came at weird times, dinner time, when no one would wash other people's feet, and Jesus said, okay, I'll do it. I mean, they'll never forget that moment. There's tax time. I don't want to pay my taxes. Jesus says, pay your taxes. I'll take care of you. It's those moments that as we see each other living life and following and obeying Christ, people just follow us by imitation. So if this is to happen, obviously this can't happen just on Sundays. The New Testament expects that there's a community that's involved with each other more than just one day a week. We're around each other, we're serving each other, we're teaching, we're worshiping with each other. Sunday is not enough. And we also need to recognize that this process cannot work if we ourselves stay as infants in the faith. We, we must be growing into maturity because if we're going to have people around us and we're going to encourage them to imitate us or have them around us so they'll, they'll obey Christ like we do, then we need to be able to say, like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. So question, are you following Christ? We need to make sure that we are people worth imitating, godly people. And the, and the, the epistles are full of statements. Consider, Paul would say, consider this person. Consider their conduct of faith. Consider their results. Be like them. Be like them. So we need to strive to be as Christians who live godly lives, are able to pass that on to other people, we need to be able to teach them. If we're going to have people in our lives that are learning about the gospel, we need to be able to answer some of the hard questions. It can't always be bouncing them off like, 
I don't know about that. Remember in Hebrews is that point, it says, now you wrote to me about Melchizedek. And then, he, like, before he starts explaining about, so what's this guy Melchizedek all about? He says, now, some of you should be able to answer this by now. You guys have been Christians long enough. Some of you should be teachers, but I'll explain it to you anyway. So, you know, we need to make sure that's true of us, that there are people in our congregation that can actually answer some of the hard questions. We need to be knowledgeable and able to instruct those who are not. And the amount that we know increases our ability to raise up disciples. And what I mean is there's, there's a spectrum of maturity. Every disciple should be a disciple maker. A brand new, one day saved disciple can be a disciple maker. In fact, they're usually some of the best disciple makers. They go running around to tell their friends the good news. Right? So they have the opportunity to go make disciples. And then as they grow, they have the ability to teach people more and more and draw people up to be more and more mature in the faith until you've got the oaks, the redwood trees of our church, right, who've just been in this game for a long time, and they're just great people to hang around because they're just so godly and so wise. We have a lot of these people here in this church. But every disciple maker is a disciple. No one is so mature, so gifted, that they do not need perpetual input from other believers in our lives. So as believers, we are making disciples of each other and of those who are lost. We're going to be constantly working in each other's lives and reaching out to those who are lost. So discipleship is a lifelong process in which we are participating both as disciples and disciplers. So, going, baptizing, and teaching. That is how we make disciples. So, let me get some closing, summarizing thoughts. First of all, let me remind you, this is Christ's contemporary work. He is making disciples even today. Jesus came. He did a bunch of work 2,000 years ago, but he didn't stop then. He's been working ever since. Christ is building his church right now, today, in Fortuna. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not Stand against it. Therefore, as his body, as his representatives, we must make sure that we're involved in this process. We'd be completely out of touch if we're not doing the work of our master. So let us be faithful disciples. The next thought. Discipleship is the means by which we will reach the ends of the world. Okay, so maybe one of us does not go to Zimbabwe. But it's discipleship that's going to get someone to Zimbabwe. That's how it happens. If one person spent 10 years and they discipled three believers to maturity, and then those, and they taught you know, disciples to make more disciples, and those people made, spent 10 years discipling three more people to maturity, in 50 years there's over 200 people working for Christ. So your investment in 10 years in three people if that keeps propagating itself, grows and grows, and eventually one of those two people, 200 people say, hey, I'm going to go to Zimbabwe. Right? Eventually, the hope is, as we are working in each other's life, we're going to look around and say, well, everybody seems pretty mature here. Let's get new people. Like ministry, we need ministry opportunities because we're equipped for ministry. And once we're equipped for ministry, let's go find it. And so, you know, rather than being fat Christians who just sit around all day, we're going to go find people to go 
evangelize, to go to. So discipleship is a means by which we will reach the ends of the earth. Next, every person is responsible to be involved in this process. I think I've stressed that enough. But what I really want to say is the Great Commission isn't for pastors alone. So, we don't pay Pastor Bob to do the work we're supposed to be doing. We pay Pastor Bob so that he can equip us so that we can actually do the work of the ministry. Uh, One of the verses that we will post on our bulletins frequently is Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. This is kind of like a theme verse for our church. And, this, and it, here's what the verse says. Christ gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, so people who teach you the word of God, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So Pastor Bob plays a very important role in this church in equipping us, and the teachers and the elders play an important role of equipping us, but we don't pay them to do our work. We're supposed to be doing work as well. We are involved with the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I've been stressing individual responsibility and probably to the neglect of teamwork, and I did that deliberately because I know we're about to hit Romans 12. Romans 12, we're going to talk about gifts. Each one of us has gifts that we can use. And you have to use them. If someone's not using their gifts, it's like having a liver that doesn't function. Not good, right? It's like having a crippled arm. It's just not good. In order for the body to be effective, each one of us has to be serving in our gifts. Everyone has to be involved. So there's almost a degree of desperation. Don't sit around. We need your help. Everyone has something to contribute to this process. And unless everyone's contributing, discipleship will really, it won't happen. It won't be effective the way it's supposed to be. So we need to find our gifts. We need to use our gifts. And within this, you can be trained in gifts. Some people are just good at evangelism. I like hanging around those people. They make it look so easy. So we need good examples of people who are evangelizing so that you can say, okay, I know I'm not gifted as an evangelist, but I know I'm commanded to evangelize, so teach me what you know. How do you make this work? Not to like put someone on the spot, but Alan's been telling me he got a Christian hip-hop CD, <laughs> Lecrae. And he's been putting it on in his car when he's working his shifts up in Eureka PD. And people keep, he keeps telling me, he's like, yeah, this guy's like, hey, that's a good album. What's that all about? And then he shares the gospel. I'm like, I need to get Lecrae. <laughs> My math students are going to be like, hey, teacher, you're so hip and cool. <laughs> that will happen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So we need people who can encourage, you know, that we can say, that works, that really works. And so, and teachers, we get a lot of examples in the New Testament of teachers raising up teachers, because you're listening about teachers. You have Paul's raising up Timothy's. So Paul sees a guy, Timothy says, hey, he looks like a guy I can use. So he says, come with me. Takes him on his arm, they spend years together, and eventually he says, yeah, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Having Timothy with you is like having me with you. That's how closely we're tied. That's how much he's been my disciple. That's how much he's been following Christ. That's how much he knows and he's equipped. And so likewise, people who are good at greeting can teach other people, like, how do you make it so good at greeting? I greet people, I feel like they feel like it's awkward. Like, that awkward guy comes up and says, hey, how's it doing? Like, 
How do you greet and make people feel warm and comfortable? Some people just do it. So you need, you, we need each other to be pouring into each other's lives that way. And so finally, I want to encourage us that wherever we are in the process of life, young, old, and middle, lots of kids, so busy that we don't know what to do ourselves, fight the good fight. I mean, this, this battle is not done until Christ comes back. There's plenty of work to do. And it's encouraging, and it's exciting. We're disciples. We get to. We get to lay down our lives for Christ Jesus. We get to pour ourselves out. And I pray that all of us could say, at the end of our lives, we have poured ourselves out like a drink offering. We have run the good race. We have fought the good fight. So let's keep encouraging and exhorting each other to that end. So let's go to communion. Communion is a time that, as a community, as a fellowship of believers, we get to celebrate together the Christ who died for us.
Here is the assurance for our victory, the accomplished purposes of Christ Jesus in discipleship. And it comes from Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Because of the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ Jesus, be assured, this work, the Great Commission, will be fulfilled. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which we was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the fact that we have the greatest treasure ever known to mankind. We have God. We have a relationship. God in us, the hope of glory. Lord, what a rich inheritance we know that we have and we look forward to the day when we receive it in its fullness. And until that day, Lord, we know that we are sent on a mission, Lord, to make disciples of all the nations. So, Lord, I pray for Redwood Christian Fellowship and all those represented here in the year 2013. We pray for fruit. We pray for the boldness and courage to speak, and we ask, God, that you would bless this endeavor. Lord, we'd love and long to see the gospel reach all of our area, God, for your glory and for their salvation. So, Lord, we thank you that you have equipped us for the task, Lord, that we have your Holy Spirit to help us in this way. So help us, we pray, and give us strength. In the name of Christ Jesus, who deserves all glory and honor, Please stand as we close.